Patrick, welcome to Broker Banter. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. This has been a, a little time in the making, and I'm glad that we're finally here discussing estate planning. Estate and tax planning. Estate and tax planning. And business succession planning, for that matter. They kind of go hand in hand, do they not? They do. So do you want to give um, people a Reader's Digest version of yourself, the viewership, the listenership, kind of how you got into this and who you're with currently and all of the, uh, all the important stuff? Sure. So my name is Patrick Connor. I'm a partner at Hush Blackwell, which is a large uh, national law firm. We're, uh, we've got about 870 attorneys right now, and so I think that's across 26 offices. We do just about everything. Uh, we're on the AmLaw 100, which means we're one of the 100 largest law firms by revenue. And uh, the nice thing about having a really big firm, other than talking about it being cool and being a really big firm, a couple things. Number one, we get to hire the best and brightest talent because people want to work for the big law firm. And then number two, it allows each of our attorneys to specialize in just one or two particular little niche areas. Because if you have any, any attorney that, any single attorney that tries to do everything under the law, uh, they're really a master of nothing because the law is so broad. There's so many things, uh, you could never be good at all of it. And so really for the last 20 years, the only thing that I've done is work with closely held businesses, their owners and individuals for business succession planning estate planning, and saving money on taxes. So a majority of your client base is business owners or all of? Majority. So I definitely work with individuals uh, and families. So, you know, everybody needs help. It just so happens that um, a lot of my clients happen to be closely held business owners. And uh, they're oftentimes the people that need the most help because of the specific characteristics around being a closely held business owner uh, lack of liquidity, large net worth, and certain things that go along with that. Yeah, there's a there's a bit of layers uh, and intricacies involved there versus just representing um, an individual. Yeah, absolutely. I would assume. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they have all the things that an individual would have. And then on top of that, they've got the business ownership. Yep. Makes sense. Um, what was your motivation around estate planning and tax planning? Uh, why did you see? Did you seek that out? Did that? Sometimes people say your interests choose you. Type it it, it kind of did, yeah. actually. So, you know, when I was in law school, and this is back a long time ago, they have, and I think they probably still do have, they have mandatory classes that you take in law school for the first year. You don't get to pick your classes. And so, when I was there, one of the mandatory classes was income tax, and everybody else thought income tax was really, really hard. And I was like, this just clicks for me. This is easy. So then when I, um, when I got to start picking my own classes, I started taking some more tax classes. And I found tax to just be really, really easy. And then I got into a class called estate and gift tax. And I learned about the estate tax, which is essentially a tax for dying. They take the net worth that you have on the day you die and they tax it. And this, of course, is money that you've already paid taxes on. So they're literally uh, taxing you for the privilege of passing assets that you've acquired over your life onto whoever you're going to pass them on to, maybe your kids. And I said, wait a second, they're literally taxing you for being successful in saving. I mean, you, you may not even be someone that's a high earner. You just maybe you're a person that saves money and you want to give your family a better life and they're going to tax you for that. 
And the answer was yes. And I said, man, I've got to, I've got to dedicate my career to helping people with hmm. this. So that was uh, back in the early 2000s. And at that time, if you had more than $675,000 in net worth, the government was taking 55% of the overage on that net worth. They're taking more than half of your things away from your family. So I, I just couldn't allow that to go on. Wow. What is the percentage now? Do you know? Yeah. So Has now, today, as, as we sit here today, it's changed greatly. Uh, e- even back then, it changed greatly. It changed a lot between 2000 and 2010. And actually, in 2010, it was a weird year. There was no estate tax in 2010. Notably, George Steinbrenner died during 2010. Uh, I had a client die uh, in 2010, saved his family millions of dollars in estate taxes. But uh, it's changed a lot. That uh, $675,000 number went up gradually between 2000 and 2009, uh, up to $3.5 million. So if you had under $3.5 million, you were okay. If you had more, uh, they were taking 40%. The tax rate went down to 40%. 40. <laughs> and it's changed more since then. Uh, you know, Today, as we sit here in 2021, the estate tax exemption is $11.7 million. So we're in actually a pretty good place right now. If you have less than $11.7 million of net worth, you don't need to worry about the estate tax. But if you've got more than $11.7 million in net worth, they're going to take 40% of the overage. And that law is already slated to change, even if the current administration does nothing. The law, by its terms, on January 1st, 2026, the estate tax exemption, the amount you can have without paying estate taxes, goes from $11.7 million down to about $5.8 million with the rate still being 40% of the overage. Wow. Obviously, these numbers, statistics, and times become imperative to understand um, depending on what level of life and profession and savings and assets that you that you carry and acquire. Yeah, one of the tricky things that goes into that net worth calculation that a lot of people don't realize is the death benefit of life insurance. So, you know, you have a lot of younger families... It's configured in that those numbers that yeah, you were saying? not the cash value, the death benefit. Interesting. So imagine you've got a younger family where, you know, the, the spouses, the parents have large term life insurance policies on themselves for in, in case they die and they leave kids behind, they want to make sure the kids are taken care of. Well, you know, if you have a, a couple that has a $3 million life insurance policy on each one of them, even without taking into account any of their other assets, you're at $6 million net worth right there. And that's a zero cash value policy. Sounds like I may need to get some estate planning done. Maybe we can talk after this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. This is good information. Yeah. And, you know, um, both of us work in an, in an industry where we're working with closely held business owners. And those are some of the people that are really hit the hardest by that. It's closely held business owners. And we'll lump farmers in with them because they are technically closely held business owners as well. So you think about that. And... It's people that have a large net worth, but no liquidity. Right. Mo- and you know this. Most of the people that are closely held business owners, they take every dollar they make and they put it back into the business because that's the place where they can get their best rate of return and that's the place where they can control it. And we know a lot of our clients are type A people that like to control their assets. And so you have these people that have businesses or farms that are worth a lot, lot, of, mo- a lot of money the real estate associated with those businesses sometimes also worth a lot of money, but not necessarily a lot of, lot of liquidity. And so when you have uh, a death and you have an estate tax event, 
the IRS wants that money in check, right? Liquid funds, cash. And it's due within nine months of the date of death. And how long, you know, you know this better than me, how long does it take to sell a business? Nine months is probably about the average. That's a, that's a fire sale maybe, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, you know, you're really kind of playing with fire there if you haven't done your planning the right way on the front end. And most business owners' largest asset is usually the business itself. Exactly. Usually. Yeah, um, almost always. That's that's generally what I observe. Um, question. So if someone passes away, how, and there is no estate plan in place, in regards to the business valuation itself, how is that determined at that juncture? So, and, and does that amount get rolled into those numbers that you were talking about previously? Yeah. So regardless of whether there's an estate plan in place, uh, when you're doing calculations for estate taxes, uh, the value of a business, as well as all the other assets, is determined by a third-party valuation, which would be hired by the executor or trustee of the decedent. And so you hire your expert value, your valuation experts. They value the business, the real estate, the people's home, and other assets. And then you report that on a tax return, an estate tax return, to the IRS, the IRS has a period of time that they can choose to either audit or accept that information. If they audit it, they come back and they say, hey, we disagree with the information you provided us and here's why. Or if they accept it, then they accept it and you move on and distribute the assets. Hmm. How often does the IRS uh, rebuke um, a CVA, for example? Certified valuation. Well, that kind of gets into my favorite attorney answer, which is it depends. It depends. (laughs) There it is. So it it depends. You know, a lot of it maybe has to do with how aggressive you get on the valuation or with the quality of the valuation or who the valuation company is that you're engaging. And also whether it's an estate that is going to generate a lot of revenue for the IRS based on the size of the estate, the size of what you're having valued. You know, if it's something where you're not going to generate any sort of estate taxes because you're under the $11.7 million, they probably aren't too interested in looking at it. But if you've got a business that's worth, you know, $20, $30 million and you're taking some aggressive positions on your valuation, they might pay a little bit more attention to that. Interesting. So, in layman's terms, I'll try. <laughs> um, in regards to estate planning, what are the goals fundamentally? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. I always like to start every meeting that I have with a client about talking about what the goals are of what we're trying to accomplish by doing this planning. So, number one is we want to have a plan about what's it look like if success is achieved, right? So, you know, if it's a business owner. What's our succession plan for the business? Because there's really only four options, right? You're either going to gift or sell it to family. You're going to gift or sell it to a group of employees or a key, a key employee. ESOP. Yep. yep. You're going to uh, sell it to possibly a third party. Kind of what we in. do. Yep. Yep. Or you're going to liquidate it. And no one wants to liquidate, right? That's not really achieving your best value out of the business. And so many business owners haven't even thought about this decision. You know, and I see that if you if you aren't thinking about this and it's not something you have to do every day, but if you don't have a goal you're working toward, you're just going into the office every day and you're and you're doing the same thing and you don't really have an exit plan. And so some people want to work until they die and and that's fine. And then, you know, obviously one of these things, eventually one of these choices is going to choose you if you haven't made your own choice. So what success look like is number one. 
Number two is, you know, along the road, we can get derailed. Bad things can happen. So someone could become incapacitated, stroke, Alzheimer's, dementia, car accident, something that would cause someone to not have capacity to make their own decisions. And so we have to have a plan in place for that. Not only for the individual, but for the individual's family and for, if they're a business owner, for their business. Mm -hmm. You know, I've run into situations before where we have a business owner and the business owner is the only person that has the ability to write checks. What happens when they die and payroll's due in a week and a half? We've got some major issues. Right. So in addition to appointing someone to make financial decisions for that individual personally... We need to have a succession plan for the business about who's going to step in and take what roles and make sure we have a journal about things that need to be accomplished if uh, any key employee or the owner of the business is no longer around because they're incapacitated. Yep. So along with that, also, we want to make sure that the individual has uh, someone, a plan in place for who's going to make health care decisions for them if they can't make them for themselves. Are those people usually the same individual? Not, not all the time. Okay. Uh, you know, you think about healthcare decisions is usually family members. True. Yep. Oftentimes, the financial decisions, which is things like paying bills, depositing checks, buying, selling, trading, gifting assets, signing your name wherever it needs to be signed for business or, per- or personal purposes, that could be the same people. Oftentimes, if people are married, oftentimes it's a spouse. And if you have mature, responsible children, a lot of times they'll include the children on that, but sometimes it's a close personal friend. Sometimes it's a trusted business advisor. Sometimes it's the key employee over at the business. And you can bifurcate the business financial decisions from the personal financial decisions as well. We are trying to ramp up this broker banter, <clears throat> this this open discussion about all the key components that go into a business sale, a successful business sale, hopefully one of virtue and not circumstance, right? Um, and one of the things that you mentioned uh, just a minute ago reminded me of something that I posted recently, and it is you have a plan for your business. Shouldn't your business have a plan for you? And, you know, I, it's it's difficult to get people to think in that regard. Right. Um, because you've created something, and it's almost, you know, a lot of people get very attached to their the identity aspects of the business, and it's like, you know, you're almost like birthing a, a proverbial child almost. And, yeah. you know, that thing grows up. You help it grow up. And the natural course of things is that should help take care of you. But you have to kind of guide that and set those things in place. So Yeah, having a plan. And so then the third part of having, you know, we talked about what's plan look like with success. What happens if you become incapacitated? The third one is the inevitable for all of us, which is someday we'll pass away. And it's the only zero-sum game. Today, or it could be decades from now. Yep. And we don't know when that time's coming, so we want to make sure we have a plan in place about where our assets go, who's in charge of getting them there, and what's it look like once they're there. And one of the things that uh, we want to make sure of is whoever's receiving these assets, whether it be during, uh, via a gift during life or via an inheritance at death, the people that receive it, we call them beneficiaries. Oftentimes it's people's children, but not always. They receive it in a fashion that's protected from divorces creditors, lawsuits, bankruptcies, and estate taxes for the rest of that beneficiary's life. So we try and build a force field around inheritances and and gifts that have been received. And that's really part of high-end estate planning is taking care of 
those kind of asset protection techniques as well as getting the assets from one generation to the next or from one person to the next at a death. So that's uh, another goal. Some of the other goals we try and accomplish is privacy planning, right? Obviously, everything I do is attorney-client privileged. I can't tell anyone else about it. We want to help keep people's affairs out of the public eye. We don't want anybody in the public to know what our clients own, how much it's worth, perhaps where they live, uh, where the assets are going when someone passes away, or who their fiduciaries are. This is private family business. This isn't something that the public needs to know about. And along those lines, we have to avoid what's called the probate process, okay? The probate process is the government's process for transferring assets from someone that's died to whoever they're going to next if the person that's died, the decedent, hasn't done their planning the right way. So if you haven't done your own planning, guess what? The state government has a plan for you and you're not going to like what it is. And it involves this probate process. Needless to say, probate in a nutshell, very it takes a long time, minimum six months by law, most of the time more like a year. It's completely public because it happens in courts. So anyone in the world can come in and find out what you own, how much it's worth, who it's going to, which is dirty business. It's very friendly toward the decedent's creditors. They get a notice in the paper to come make their claim and have six months to do so. And it costs a ton of money. You've got court fees, attorney's fees, executor fees, bonding fees, publication fees. This is tens of thousands of dollars. And so rule number one, if you want to avoid that, come talk to somebody like yourself. Right. Get, get your own plan in place so you're not relying on the government plan. So we've got to avoid that probate process. And if we can save some money on taxes along the way, all the better. You know, I'm a, I'm a tax attorney. I've got a Master of Laws degree in tax law from WashU. So when my clients come see me, inevitably, they're always getting tax advice. And, you know, let's make this easy. Let's make it understandable. Let's make it as quick as possible, as painless as possible, and as inexpensive as possible. Yep. Right? So those are the goals. Yep. Those are great goals. A lot of estate planning has to do with taxes, as you've mentioned. Right. And there have been a lot of changes to the tax law, uh, or at least a lot of discussion about such a thing. What would you like to speak into in regards to that? Well, we had a lot of great changes that became effective in 2018 especially for closely held business owners. You know, they lowered the C corporation tax rate from 35% to 21%, which has helped a lot of our mutual clients. The S corporation got the qualified business income tax deduction, QBI. I guess that's all passed through entities actually got the QBI, which is a 20% deduction. And individual tax rates, generally the brackets were lowered a little bit. So it made tax income taxes a little bit more friendly. For the most part, other than the SECURE Act affecting retirement plans, that's been the last major tax change that's affected a lot of our mutual clients since 2018. Now, we've got a new administration in the White House, and there's been lots of proposals thrown up in the air since, you know, say January, February, about what's going to happen. And, you know, one of those proposals is increasing the capital gains tax rate for high earners to over 40% which is a huge tax hike because right now your highest capital gains tax percentage is 20%. And you know this just as well as I do. This affects a lot of people that would be considering selling a business. That's a major tax difference on a business sale. Uh, Another tax change they've proposed is 
eliminating the basis adjustment at death. Most people call that a step up in basis. So right now, when someone dies, the assets that that person owns, the basis of those assets is marked to fair market value on that person's date of death. So that way, if a successor, like a child or a spouse, sells those assets after that person dies, they have a much lower or possibly no capital gains tax implications. So the current administration is considering eliminating the step-up in basis, basis adjustment at death when someone dies. And so the, the people that inherit the assets would get the decedent's basis, and, and when they sell it, they'd still have the same capital gains tax ramifications. Now, on top of that, there's been some talk, and this one I think is very extreme, about treating someone's assets that they own when they die as if they were sold on the day they die and collecting a capital gains tax in addition to the estate tax. And I would be very surprised if that went through, but it could. And then finally, we, uh, we already talked about the change, the possible change in the estate tax, a little lowering the exemption from $11.7 million down to $3.5 million and increasing the rate from 40% to 55%. So I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you whether some of these things are going to happen or not. They're somewhat scary, especially one of the ones that I think that I've heard is, you know, the capital gains tax rate increase seems to be where they're spending most of their time concentrating. And they said, they've, they've said on a couple occasions, they want to try and make that retroactive to April. Mm-hmm. And I've heard. you and I are both working with clients that are selling businesses today. And the calculations are based on the fact that they're selling businesses today with the tax regime that's currently in place. Could you imagine a situation where someone closes on their business sale, let's just say on July 30th, and then at the end of the year, they come back and say, hey, the capital gains tax, when you closed on your business sale, was not actually 20%. It was over 40%. And so that's that would be a rude awakening to have that retroactivity applied. It certainly would. We've had four closings. By the time Friday comes, we'll have four closings in the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. And you're just thinking to yourself, like, okay, so if the capital gains rate uh, doubles, that's almost like asking the business owner to immediately go make your business perform at a 20% higher rate than it is currently, both top and bottom line. That's a little bit difficult to do. So are you seeing, um, you know, a question back for you, are you seeing increased volume of sales because of the possibility of impending capital gains tax increases? So it's been an interesting landscape. When the virus hit, there was a little bit of a hold on the sell side. Mm-hmm. Buy side went through the roof because mm-hmm. I think people were smelling blood, so to speak. And thought they could get some deals. Thought they could get some deals. The sellers were like, wait, wait, hold on a second. We don't even know what's happening right now. So there was a holding pattern. It didn't come to a halt on the sell side, uh, but it was kind of business as usual. The earlier part of this year and for the first eh, three or four months, first quarter or so, we got an influx of sellers who started coming to the table. And we we are circling around a lot of conversations at the moment. It feels like for the same reasons I believe that you just outlined, we are, I think, slowing down a little bit on the sell side. The buy side hasn't stopped. Has not stopped throughout the entire last year of the sky falling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been interesting. But, and, and I think because partially, sometimes what we do, so we sell... You know, we go up to maybe 20 million 
I think 20 million is around the largest opportunity we're we're working on currently. Sure. But we go down to 100, 300,000 at a time. And at that level, I think a lot of people are purchasing jobs and destinies that they can feel more in control of. Mm-hmm. And they're coming out of corporate America and especially around the 700 to 750,000 dollar mark in terms of an asking price that usually represents something around 250 to 300,000 in earnings which after debt services can replace that corporate income that they're walking right. away from. So that tends to be a kind of a sweet spot. Um, but I tell you the, the the whole thing has been interesting to observe and it will be moving forward I'm sure. So going off of something you said earlier, you see the usual sale timeline average about nine months. I usually, so whenever, whenever I have a a client, which they always do, how long does it take? That's the question. And then you get to use my attorney answer. (laughs) It depends. (laughs) That's, that's kind of funny because I actually do say that in a roundabout way. Um, and you mentioned this earlier. I wish that I, I had a crystal ball and, and so did, so do I, I usually tell them I aim for six to eight months. Out the door, closed, et cetera. Um, That's my timeline. And so we're kind of at that precipice right now where someone that maybe starts a transaction right now, we're looking for a year-end closing. And so we're, you know, this capital gains tax thing, if we aren't going to have retroactivity and it's going to become effective on 1-1-2022, people that are thinking about this and say, hey, I want to try and get in on this lower capital gains tax rate of 20% max instead of 40-something percent max, uh, now's the time, right? Agreed. So, Patrick, what does a good estate plan consist of, and how do we go about accomplishing those goals? Right. So I'm glad you tied it back into the goals because that is what we do, right? We start with the goals and we say, how do we accomplish these goals? So... You know, if we think about how do we cover what happens when someone becomes incapacitated, we want to have a healthcare power of attorney and medical directive that provides if you're incapacitated, here's who makes healthcare decisions for you. And if you are in a vegetative state, no hope for recovery, what wishes that you want to have for the outside world to know, because that's that writing is your only communication that you have for people to know what you want. We also want to have a financial power of attorney that allows someone to handle your financial affairs for you. And with both of these documents, we want to make sure we not only appoint the first person, but we have a whole chain of successors. Because if we run out of people, we're back to the state plan, which is a judge making choices for you, which is not where we want to be. Most people, when they think about uh, estate planning, they're like, oh, I've got to go get my will done. Right, And so traditionally people watch TV, court TV shows or law TV shows and they talk about wills and everybody talks about wills. Wills are truly an antiquated way of doing estate planning. Yes, you can still use a will to say where your assets go when you die and appoint an executor to get them there. But anything that transfers through a will goes through the probate process. And so we don't like to use wills for estate planning. What we use now are trusts. And a trust is, it does the exact same thing a will does. It says, hey, when I die, here's where my assets go, here's who's in charge of getting them there, and here's what it looks like once they arrive. But it circumvents probate, et cetera. When you use the trust the correct way, it completely avoids the probate process. So we save six months to a year of time, we avoid publicity, and we save a lot of money in probate expenses. 
So that's goal number one. Goal number two with trust that we accomplished, remember we talked about that asset protection for our beneficiaries, divorce protection, creditor protection, lawsuit protection, bankruptcy protection, and protection from estate taxes. That's what we do with trusts. And then finally, you know, sometimes people have minor children or they want to set up rules for their beneficiaries. You know, maybe uh, if the kids are too young, we need to have some decision makers in the place to make sure the assets are used responsibly and not destructively. Or we want people to um, accomplish certain goals or be restricted from certain behaviors. You can do those things through the trust planning. And those are things generally you're not going to be able to do with a will. And you can, generally speaking, get as precise as you want to be. Yeah. Is that uh, accurate? Anything you want to do, we can do through your estate plan. And the things that you would tell me will not surprise me. I've seen I'm sure. all kinds of interesting, novel ideas, wacky and wild stuff. Uh, it, it's part of what makes this job fun. That makes sense. So, you know, the healthcare power, the financial power, the will, and the trust, that's what we call your core estate plan. That's kind of your foundation that you build upon. That's what we think everybody needs. Now, some people need more than that, right? If you have an estate tax issue where you say, hey, you know, I have more than three and a half million, and I'm afraid that the new administration is going to lower that number, the estate tax exemption below three and a half million, that's something that we need to talk about and maybe do a little bit more than the core documents. If you have some uh, asset protection concerns, you know, you work in a risky industry, that's something we can talk about as well. So we start with the core estate plan, and then if we need to do advanced estate tax planning, asset protection planning, charitable planning, these are all things that we can add on. It's kind of like building a house. You build the foundation, and then you can build things on top of it. Now, um, you know, business owners have their own specific kind of... Um, things that we have to be concerned about as well. So, you know, they've got this giant business out there and we like to look at it and make sure they're doing things in the most tax advantage way, both for transfer taxes, which is state and gift taxes, as well as income taxes. Uh, we try and help our clients get the best leg up on income taxes that we can, as well as asset protection. In regards to hindrances, what do you see as being the largest blockade from people who need estate and tax planning versus ones who actually get it and achieve that? Uh, really, the biggest hindrance is time. Everybody's busy, right? So think back to last year is actually a really interesting deal. Uh, we had the pandemic, right? And so during the pandemic, everything was shut down. There's no going out to eat. There's no kids' sports. There's no going to the movies. There's no really doing anything other than sitting in your house. And, you know, it was interesting. I thought that maybe we would be not busy, but we were in my group very busy. And it wasn't because people were afraid of becoming incapacitated or passing away from coronavirus. It's because everybody was getting through their to-do lists because they had nothing else to do. And so for everyone, estate planning is on your to-do list. It's just at the bottom. And why is that? Well, you don't think you're going to die tomorrow. How long do you have to do estate planning? The rest of your life. How long is that? I don't know. But people were, you know, if you don't have sports to watch or, or go take kids to sports or go out to eat or go to the bar or whatever your, your leisure activity of choice is, you get to go through your to-do list and you get to the bottom and you're like, oh, estate planning. It's a great time to do that. Now. So did you see a spike last year? We did. Interesting. Yeah, of people doing estate plans because they finally, they didn't have anything else to do. But most of the problem is is people having the time to do it 
and they know it's on their list, it's just not a priority on their list. So, you know, obviously all of my work is by referral only. We don't do any sort of advertising. And the best advisors that send us business are people that pull their clients aside and say, hey, you know, you really need to do this. Let's spend a little bit of time on this. And, and it's crazy. Uh, I talk to people and I say, you know, it really doesn't take that much time and it's not that hard. After people come meet with me, they're like, you know, that was pretty painless. If you think about, you know, the last time that you planned a vacation, how many hours did you spend like researching cheap flights and the best hotel and all the places to go and what you're going to do when you're there? Guess what? It takes less time to do an estate plan that covers everything that you own, your entire family, and saves money on taxes than planning your last vacation. Well, and that's in a week that you're trying to plan for versus eternity right potentially so time and procrastination is is the main thing that's a hindrance to people getting an estate plan in place and sometimes on top of that people are loath to make decisions or they can't come up with a decision and i tell people it's always better to have any decision that you make than no decision because if you do no decision it's going to be the government making that choice for you so it could be a judge or it could be state law and no one likes that most people don't. So I think one of the things that's on our website, and this is generally true in most situations, um, most good things start with a conversation. Right. Would you agree that's a good catalyst for getting things started with you? Oh, absolutely. And or an estate or tax plan? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, if you have existing documents, we always love to review what you've got. If you just want to call and have a chat about some basic estate planning, we can do that. If you want to have a video conference or come in for a meeting, you know, that's that's how it always starts. So last question, and then we'll wrap it up here. Are there any things in the estate planning field that business owners need to know about before selling or buying a business? Yeah, so business owners, like I said, are, are a unique bunch. So let's run through a couple different things that could happen. So things that I get asked commonly by business owners, they're interested in gifting stock sometimes or gifting ownership interests in their business for a variety of reasons. That could be they want to pass down ownership interests to the next generation of their family, or it could be to employees. And so I always say we have to be very careful about transferring stock to employees or even the next generation because once ownership interests are gifted or transferred, it's very hard to get them back. And then that person has ownership in your business for as long as they want to have it. So anytime we're going to have multiple owners of a business, we want to make sure we have the ownership tied up with either a buy-sell agreement or an owner's agreement or a shareholder's agreement. Those names are kind of synonymous, which covers what happens if someone in the ownership group dies, becomes permanently disabled, gets divorced, has a creditor issue, or leaves the employment of the business. So that way we don't end up in business with someone that we don't want to be in business with. And the, the agreement has mechanisms for making sure that we can buy that stock back or those ownership interests back at a set valuation and provides funding mechanisms for that purchase, whether it be life insurance or a promissory note. So those are that's that's an issue that we have with people that are interested in like having multiple owners or giving stock out to employees or, or kids or the next generation of the family. The other thing is we never ever want to give any sort of gifts outright 
So if you're thinking of making a sizable gift to children or family members or even key employees, you know, if you make a gift outright, that property is then theirs and it's subject to all the problems that that person has, which could be divorces, creditors, bankruptcies, lawsuits, things like that. And so we've got to make sure that we, when we do it, we do it the right way. So we always recommend if you're going to make a sizable gift, whether it be cash or valuable property like ownership in a business, we gift it in trust so that they have that asset protection. Now, more specifically, you were asking about like, hey, we're maybe going to have a liquidity event coming up. What sort of planning can we do in advance of that? And how long does that take, by the way? What's my favorite attorney answer? It depends. <laughs> depends. Yeah. So if you think about, if you have someone that you think is going to have an estate tax issue, which these days that, you know, today, sitting here today at the table with you, it, that means someone that has more than $11.7 million net worth. But in the future, that could be someone with over $5.8 million net worth or someone with over even $3.5 million net worth. So if we're going to have a liquidity event, uh, a lot of it, it, it's it's in if you think about it simply, it's like the changing of the form of ownership from a business to liquid assets. And if the business is worth X, the liquid assets should be worth the same X. But that's oftentimes not the case. And so when we see people that are thinking about having a liquidity event, if we can get in touch with them ahead of time, and we can get uh, a low or discounted value on some of the ownership interests associated with that business, we can move those ownership interests out of the place where they would be taxable for estate taxes into a trust that's protected from estate taxes at that low valuation. And then when the liquidity, we freeze the, the valuation at that value. And then when the liquidity event happens at the higher valuation, the delta between the high valuation and our frozen valuation is trapped in a place where it doesn't get estate taxed when someone dies. And that could be millions of dollars of savings for the family by engaging in a transaction that costs, you know, thousands of dollars. And I'm talking about like $10,000 or less to save millions of dollars on a liquidity event. And your question about how long does that take? Well, you know, to pull off that transaction, probably six weeks. But to, we have to know about it far enough in advance of the liquidity event. So if you say, hey, when's the best time to pull this off? It's probably two to three years before you're going to have that liquidity event. I'm not saying don't come talk to me if you think you're going to have a liquidity event later this year. I'm just saying best strategy is be a little proactive about it and let's do it the right way. It comes down to virtue versus circumstance. Too many times I see people circumstantially imposed backed into a corner they have to do this right so there's no virtuous aspects to what they're doing they're just doing what they need to do and what's in front of them which isn't a horrible thing sometimes that's life however if you can be preemptive about it like you're discussing if you come and see people like us at premier we're able to help at least assess if not a full market valuation or cba and configure that value on site and then Hopefully, best practice, probably turn them over to somebody like yourself to go, hey, now that we've had this triggering event, let's have another one. Right. And, and really, you want to, you know, for these business owners, they want to surround themselves with a team, right? It's you, it's an accountant, it's an attorney, and it's a financial advisor. And if we can get them in that, if we can get that team assembled two to three years ahead of a liquidity event, 
we can make a huge difference with revenue from that liquidity event, tax savings, and making the right kind of calculations for perhaps retirement or perhaps investment into another business with the financial advisor. And our observation is that those types of things, those circles of influence, right. um, the important aspects and figureheads of, of a business owner's life uh, is happening. We all come together, whether you like it or not. It's It happens organically. Right. Now, it's better to do that from the starting line than it is when you're on the last mile. You know, too many times we're kind of quarterbacking all these folks to get them to speak to get, you know, to each other, to have a consistent narrative. And it's difficult to do when you have two offers in place and you're trying to appease the buyers because there's timelines on those offers that are, you know, current. And if we can do that from day one, which is what we're, we're trying to do this as a firm is to make more of a conscious effort to kind of call out all of these folks from the start. And, and that's part of what this podcast is about. That's right? correct. So that it is. You've already had some, some great people on this podcast. And when our clients and business owners listen to this and they, they realize, hey, you know, here's the team that we need to have. And if we be a little bit proactive about this, we, it can make a really big difference in our life. It's about getting the education out there. And, and that's where I kind of base my practice is I try and just give an education to anyone that comes and meets with me so they can make the right choices for them, their business, their family. And so it's so much just an education piece and then all the pieces fall into place from there. Agreed. And you said the magic word, which is education. You know, I, I think our, and maybe this is, you have a similar story on your end, but the largest foe uh, that we encounter is lack of awareness. Mm-hmm. I think if people understood some some of these things that we're discussing in this session ahead of schedule, it would change their behavior. Agreed. So this is a... Uh, this is a great opportunity to discuss those things and, and hopefully enlighten some folks that are listening. So maybe a good place to cap as well. Yeah. Well, Jared, I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for having me out. We, we loved having you over. Um, we're very fond of your firm, you, what you do. And um, do you want to kind of give an oversight of your communication, your contact information? Sure, I can. So, you know, again, it's Patrick Connor. I'm a partner at Hush Blackwell. And uh, you can reach my direct phone line at 314-480-1637. Or you can email me directly, and that's patrick.conner, and it's C-O-N-N-E-R, at hushblackwell.com. That's H-U-S-C-H, black, W-E-L-L.com. And uh, I'd be happy to chat with anyone that listens to this and have a call or an email with you. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming over, Patrick. No, it's my pleasure. Appreciate it. Great to see you.